It was my ability to get into water and forget about the world. It was my ability to to do something that nobody judged me for. And I think those were really important. And I'd love to share that back. And, and that was the reason for being a part of Laurie's. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of our podcast, Partners in Time. It's a uh, pleasure to have you all back with us today. And today we're going to talk a little bit about sport. We're going to talk about good and sport for good and the whole topic of Laureus and the amazing work that Laureus has been doing for many, many years now, inspired by the original vision of Nelson Mandela um, to change the world for the better for the power of sport. And today I'm joined by two exceptional athletes and uh, Laureus ambassadors from very different sports, but with both in their in their own unique ways, absolutely amazing sporting career and achievements. Um, we have Natalie Dutois with us, a South African uh, Olympic and Paralympic swimmer. And we have Anna Schaffelhuber with us, a German a Paralympic pro a downhill skier, and both of them obviously achieving amazing success in their career multi-medal winners including in the Paralympic Games at various points but we're going to come to that in a second but first of all thank you very much for joining us I just want to talk to you quickly see where you're dialing in from and uh, just say hello so Natalie how are you? Hi good, good afternoon I'm dialing in from South Africa from actually a really little town called Cape Dallas which is the southernmost of Africa but that's my history for the day. Um, Brilliant oh, that's, <laughs> that's a good that. start. <laughs> Um, no, great. So, you know, enjoying working from here and yeah, I guess enjoying working from home as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, let's do the time check. What, what time is it in South Africa at the moment? I mean, it must oh, be right. really it's, our time. It is 22.06 in the evening. So okay. we're about an hour ahead of you. Yeah, hour ahead of us indeed. And where and how do you time check? Is it the oven clock? Is it uh, your smartphone? Is it your smart device or indeed your watch? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's all of them, really. <laughs> Which one comes first? <laughs> um, but yes, this in this case, it it is my computer. So it might be a minute or two behind, but but pretty much uh, up to pay, up to speed. And welcome to the Mechanical Watches podcast. Here we are. <laughs> no, brilliant. And uh, Anna, same to you. Um, just uh, hi. Thank you for joining. And and where are you joining us from? Hi guys, um, yeah, I'm sitting um, in Germany at the moment. It's, oh, let me see, um, quarter to 5 p.m., mm. so a little earlier, earlier um, than to Natalie. Um, yes, we had have great weather. I have on my uh, my desk when I look out the window. I have we have snow on the mountains, so um, maybe a little bit, a little bit different, um, like at Natalie's place. Right, so I've got to ask you, Anna, and I know this is sort of a bit of an impromptu question here, but. You know, I'm struggling very much when I can see snow out of my window and I'm supposed to do anything else but be out in the snow enjoying it. I get really bad FOMO. Can, can you can you handle it? Oh, uh, yeah, I try to. <laughs> uh, no, it's okay. You know, I moved um, to the mountains uh, a few years ago. So, um, yeah, it's getting more and more usual. But all in all, if you have a weather like today, um, of course, I want to go outside and do anything. But, you know, the sun is um, going down. So, 
I think it might be okay. <laughs> yeah, it might be okay this time of day. But also the other thing that's bugging me is this is the perfect ski week this week huh? because we had uh, fresh snow last weekend and then uh, in perfect conditions. And I think it's sunny more or less all week in most of the Alps this week. So everyone who's got this week off uh, is extremely lucky and it's guaranteed by the time it comes around to our ski week, it will be full on rain and plus nine degrees as it always is. But yeah, yeah. this is the week. <laughs> anyone who's yeah. got a couple of days off and some skis or snowboard or something handy, just go, go now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Brilliant. Now, thanks for joining us. I want to start with you, Natalie. Um, just, just tell us a little bit about your sto story and how you got into swimming and a little bit sort of your journey into sport and your career. Just give us a little bit of a background. Wow, that's a, a long story. It's a long I'm, story. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a spring chicken anymore, but um, no, I, I started swimming um, at the age of six. And actually, I was the younger sister um, in my family and my brother was a swimmer. And I was kind of the little girl that sat on the side of the pool while my brother was training and i was actually petrified of water and then a few days before i turned six um i said to my mom i want to swim and she asked the coach if um you know she put me in the water and see if i'm if i have any potential whatsoever um and i got into the water and i think i just took to it you know i just love the sport um i here in south africa when i was a little girl we used to race once a, once a month. We used to compete um, in whatever swimming pool. Um, and I think that was just the way of life and, and the way that life, you know, became part of, um, you know, who I am, what I am, how I am and everything about me. Um, but yes, yeah, took to swimming. And I guess I went on my first international tour when I was 12 to Crystal Palace in London. Mm. Um, it was a junior tour. My first time ever overseas. Um, my parents actually couldn't afford it, so we had someone put up some money, and then I, I actually raised some money by walking the streets and asking for donations. Yeah. Um, I was 14 when I made my first international team um, to the Commonwealth Games, and um, I, I actually missed my race there, so I was a bit of negative media, negative talk, um, and then. Yeah, had a motorbike accident in 2001 when I was 17 years old. Mm. And yeah, I think throughout, you know, your career in swimming, it takes a long time to, to qualify for the Olympics. It doesn't just happen within four years, um, especially at a young age. You've got to work really hard. Um, and yeah, you know, managed to get to the Olympics when I was 24 and reached my dreams and got it, went to the Paralympics as well. So it was a long career. Um, but yeah, I just love the sport. And I think, you know, I gave everything to it. So I put my heart and soul, all my energy into it. Yeah. And I, I guess you're one of the very few people that are both Olympic and Paralympic athletes. Right? That's, that hasn't been done many times at all. Yes, it's, it's sometimes challenging to explain. But, uh, you know, in, in the Olympic side, I swam open water. So it's the 10-kilometer yeah. yeah, event. Yeah, yeah. Um That and then scary. in the disabled side, it's it's in the swimming pool, and there are no dis distance events for disabled. So there's those the sprinting events, um, and then generally when I competed in the pool, it was able-bodied, 800 meters and 1500 meters. So yeah. I covered from a 50 meter sprint all the way to the 10 kilometer, wow. um, and and ultimately I placed fourth in the world championships to qualify for the Olympic Games because we had to be top 10 in the world um, to qualify. Um, so yeah it was it was tough and it was a goal that i'd set from when i was a young girl so to be able to achieve it is 
I think, you know, everything that I, I set my heart on. Mm. Well, that's, that's, I mean, these, these, I mean, I, I really don't know a lot about competitive swimming, but when I watch these open water swimming events in the Olympics, that always looks very sort of hands-on and quite, quite, quite pushy. Yeah? How is that? <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, it is, uh, it's, it's the marathon of swimming, but it is a group of swimmers that all dive in together. Yeah. So you stand on like a moving platform and it was it was, I had to be really careful because when you stand up with one leg, it's easy to fall over because mm. it's just a floating platform. Um, so I used to sit right to the last minute when the gun went off, dive into the water and literally you can dive on top of one another. Yeah. So it is trying to get away from the elbows, the, the fists. Um, and, you know, throughout the race, it's trying to find the strategy that works for you. Um, for me, it was the inside line and the shortest route possible. And, yeah. You know, the girls tend to swim quite a brutal race um, from the word go. They don't like to speed up every lap. They tend to go out hard um, from the beginning, whereas mm. the boys race a little differently. But yes, you know, in, in my perfect race, I was just in the right spot. Um, I didn't get hit. I didn't get kicked. And what we do, we do feed because it's so such a long race. Mm. Um, and if it's really hot, we do take gels or, you know, some liquid out of a bottle um, and ultimately, you know, you can feed when you want. Um, so there's usually spots along the two and a half kilometer route, but yes, it's, it's a, it's a grueling race because if you do get an elbow in the, in the face, for example, by mistake, um, your goggles can come off and you can get mm. water in your goggles. Um, you know, so there's a lot that can happen. Um, but yes, it's, I guess your race is trying to make sure that those things don't happen and make sure that you are in the front by the last lap so that you can sprint towards the finish. Yeah. And I, I think I, I used to see like where, where the turning boys are and think you have, actually have people in sort of canoes, just sort of referees watching over proceedings there because, you know, that, that gives you an indication how, how, how pushy that race actually is. It is a hard race. Absolutely. So the, the referees are there to, to make it fair. Yeah. Um, there's a lot that happens under the water, I guess, like in water polo that ah. referees can't see. And, you know, between the boys, there's usually four laps of two and a half kilometers. Sometimes there's, there's different um, lengths um, and different amounts of laps. But usually the four and you've got a what we call spot between the boys. So you've got to look from one boy to the next. Um, and sometimes the lines split. Um, and the referees are really there just to make sure that, you know, you don't get hit or kicked on purpose that because when you're swimming, you can actually stop one stroke if you swim too close to them. Um, you know, you can stop, you can touch their arms so that they don't get into a rhythm. Um, and sometimes those are the tactics that the, you know, that the swimmers do have. So um, it's just to try and make it as fair as possible. And it's, it's sometimes tough for the swimmer because you don't really hear the whistle that easily. Um, and if you get, you know, two yellow cards, then you're actually disqualified. If you get a red card, you're disqualified. So you've also got to be very aware um, while you're racing. Um, and if there are waves, it can be really challenging. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> you know, who's ever tried open water swimming can relate to that. Definitely. It's n nothing like uh, the old swimming pool. Um, and talk us uh, through your, your Olympic and, and World Championship accolades. Um, I mean, you've, you've amassed uh, quite the medal collection. So I was disabled uh, when I was 17 years old. So I only really got to know about disabled sport um, at that time. Mm. And um, so I, I wasn't in it for very long. Um, I really had to learn, what, you know, the different categories and the different 
um, you know, events because yeah. I wasn't a sprinter. I had to start sprinting um, if I wanted to compete. And I was an individual making swimmer, so I wanted to race in every event because I get really bored just sitting on the side and watching everybody. So, um, you know, from the minute I was disabled, I started competing as, as a disabled person. Um, and I had to be classified. Um, so I had a class and I got to know my competitors. Um, and within a few months after my accident, I actually went off to the Commonwealth Games. And that was my first competition. And mm. with that competition, it was um, all the dis different disabilities actually swimming in one race. And it was the person who was closest to the world record or broke the world record that actually won the gold medal because there was only one gold, one silver, and one bronze medal. So that was how I sort of was thrown into the disabled side of things. Yeah. Um, we actually call that multi-disability. But um, I was fortunate to qualify for, I think it's three Paralympics, 2014, yes, three Paralympics. Um, and, you know, to win about a medal in almost every race that I competed in, um, I think bar one race. Um, so I think from that, you know, it was a great time for me to retire after the three Paralympics. And I managed to also qualify for the Olympic Games. And that was probably the pinnacle of my career. Mm. Um, but yes, I've competed at Commonwealth Games, uh, World Championships, um, Olympic Games, Paralympic Games. So all the top games um, and, you know, all the stepping stones that we needed to, to qualify for the top competitions. Um, those were, you know, those were along the way as well. So I raced a lot um, <laughs> and I sang three different sort of calendars in, in a year. So I had to do the able-bodied events. I had to do the disabled events and I had to do the open water events to, to get points and to qualify, um, et cetera. So, you know, it, it took up a lot of my time and it took, you know, from studies to everything I had to put aside in order to train the eight hours a day um, and, and be ready for all the competitions. Yeah, amazing. And then you retired in 2012, right? Yes, many years ago. <laughs> oh, seems like yesterday. <laughs> and what have you been up to since? Well, it's been a roller coaster. I think, um, you know, sport was was everything um yeah and i think even though you're prepared for leaving sport i don't think you can ever really be prepared um you know things fly at you from different angles and what you thought you were going to do you didn't do and you didn't go into so i fell into communications and and social media and just i'm actually a digital marketer so mm -hmm. um i just found the love for that because the time and effort that i spent in the pool i think um, it's the same in social media. It's always changing. It's always different. But if you put in the hours, um, you know, you can make that difference and you can grow that brand. And I think that's really been, you know, what's important to me. Um, you know, being an ambassador for Laureus as well from, you know, just as I was disabled um, 2003. So I've been there for many years and, you know, being able to see, um, you know, the different communities and the way that sport has the ability to, to, bring to people's lives and to change people's lives the way that it did in my life. Um, and, you know, the lessons that it taught me. So, you know, motivational speaking, I do a little bit of that too. Um, and serving on commissions, um, on sports commissions. And I think that's my role within sport. Um, I didn't want to become a coach. So yeah. I think giving back and giving back the lessons that sport taught me is something that's fundamental to me. So, yeah, um, yeah that's kind of been my role the last few years. Brilliant.
Amazing. Same question then to Anna. Uh, Anna, even you obviously you, you're also in water, albeit uh, frozen. So <laughs> let's uh, let's have a little chat. Um, your your story uh, and, and your sports career and, and and what's been happening ever since. Well, so you have to know that's a big, big difference for myself. Mm. So <laughs> um, I really I prefer the frozen water. Um, yeah, you know I can go outside. Um, yeah, it does not matter how cold it is. But the cold water and to to go into it and swim, that's a leap. You have uh, full respect. Um, yeah, that's not my thing. So, um, yeah, how, how can I start? So, yeah, I learned skiing when I was five years old. Mm. Um, so I have two brothers, an older and a younger one. And both of them wanted to learn skiing. And I have my disability since, uh, since birth. So, um, yeah, and at this, this moment, um, of course, I wanted to um, go skiing too. But, um, and then my, my dad um, read the newspaper and um, yeah, there was an article that, um, yeah, it's possible to learn um, sit skiing, so to learn skiing with a monoski. Yeah. And um, yeah, so that was the point um, when I, when, yeah, it was my first try. Um, I went to, to Austria and yeah, learned um, skiing. So um, yeah, it was very early when um, when I recognized for myself that um, yeah, when I'm in a, on a sit ski, um, I yeah, I can go wherever I want to, and it does not matter if I have a wheelchair or not. So I can reach um, every place where um, every, yeah, I say able person um, can can go to, uh, yeah, to. And um, yeah, so it was the first time on the Sitski, and I really I love the sport. And um, yeah, I love the mix out of um, yeah, the speed and of the, yeah, about feeling free. Yeah. So. Um, I learned skiing um, from a person from Gerda um, who was in Paralympian too, um, yeah, several years ago. And um, yeah, I met Gerda um, a few times, and she always wanted, um, yeah, me to to try, um, yeah, try to take part in some some competitions. But um, if I'm honest, in the first time I did not want to because um, I knew I cannot train um, at home. So um, I have to, yeah, leave the family. I have to go to the mountains, um, and yeah, I knew the yeah the my life, my whole life would change. And the first time I did not want this, and yeah, but I met Gerda. I think um, I was 13. I met her once again, and um, yeah, she asked me if, if I want to, um, yeah, have a try. And if I'm honest, um, with 13, 14, it was the first time for myself when I said, um, okay, um, might be might be good not to be um, so often at home and don't to go to school very often, all these things. And um, yeah, then I uh, went to the first, um, yeah, well, like a training camp. And it, that was very important for myself because on the one hand, um, there were trainers who um, yeah kept an eye on myself and decided if it makes sense or not. And of course, but for myself, it was very important um, because, um, yeah, I, I saw what is, um, yeah, what is skiing in a competition because it's uh, completely different. Like, um, yeah, go, go free skiing and have a look um, for nature and all these things. Um, yeah, but then I, um, I was not that slow. So I saw, um, I'm, yeah, I'm not that slow. Um, it was the first time when I got ambitious and I thought, mm. okay, um, 
Yeah, it was not that I said, okay, I want to go to the Republic Games in a few years. It was um, more like I wanted to do step by step. So the first time I want to uh, take part in the Bavarian um, yeah, Games and then I was the German National uh, Championships. And yeah, it was, um, let me think, I think it, I was 15 or 16 um, when I um, took part in my first um, international competition. And yeah, and then I was a very young girl. Um, I just turned 17 when I um, took part in my first um, Paralympic Games in Vancouver. And yeah, you know, it's always my, my whole career. It was um, yeah, step by step. And um, yeah, so and uh, I remember when I was at the, for my first games, um, I was on the start and um, it was the first time when I yeah recognized um, how fast um, yeah, things worked, worked out. And I said, okay, um, I did not um, think about um, take part of the Paralympics and um, hello, here I am. <laughs> and um, yeah, so in the last, um, yeah, in the next years after after Vancouver, um, I took part in the Paralympic Games in Sochi and in Pyeongchang, so the last games. And um, yeah, I really had a, I had a great time. I really, um, I, I loved um, my job. So, um, yeah, I loved going to ski, I loved the training um, around this. And uh, I think it's um, very similar to, to Natalie's uh, story. So um, I gave all my heart to, to the sport and I, um, I moved um, yeah, to, the, to the mountains. Um, yeah, so left, left the family, left home. And um, yeah, but that was what I wanted to do. And, um, but after a few years or several years, um, I think I was 25, 26. Mm. Uh, first time when I um, thought, okay, I had a great, great time and I had an, a very intensive time. But um, for myself, it felt a little bit like um, I want to have some new challenges. You know, I've, um, yeah, so I left home with the age of um, 13 years old and then I was um, 26. Um, I finished school, I finished my studies. Um, beside the sport. So um, that was a point for myself where I said, okay, I had a great time. And um, I retired from, from the active sport. And I think it was similar to Natalie too. I did not want to get, uh, become a, a trainer because then I said, um, okay, I will be, um, yeah, I won't be at home um, like before, but um, now I don't, um, I don't ski, I stand on the mountain and um, yeah. And that's not what I wanted to do. So I founded um, a camp. Um, it's uh, it's called um, the Anna Schaffelhuber Camps. It's a camp for um, abled and disabled um, children. And yeah, and now I work as a teacher and I have my camps and um, yeah, I really love, love this job now. Yeah, they, they look amazing. I right? just want to mention quickly that obviously you did have a, a full clean sweep in Sochi. Huh? You won every single alpine skiing event at the uh, Sochi Games in uh, downhill. Is that correct? Um, yes. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> that's pretty <bloody> um, amazing. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> um, Has yeah, anyone done that no, before? Sorry? Has anybody was else it? ever done that? Um, honestly, yes. Um, there was a Canadian um, girl, Lauren Wollstonecraft. Um, she did it once, uh, once again. So we are the two persons. <laughs> so you have to have a duo one day and have it out. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> might be. So For the goat title. <laughs> <laughs> 
um, yeah, you know, I had a I had a really really good um, good season um, in 2014. Yeah. So um, I trained in a um, yeah in a in a team with with men, and um, I really we had really a good a great team. And um, I was very ambitious. Um, my teammates were very ambitious, and um, my training in, in summer went very very well. So um, yeah, I went into the season, and I knew. Um, after the first competitions, yeah, I knew it might be possible, but honestly, I did not think that I will win um, all the gold medals um, because, you know, um, at the Paralympics, um, it's yeah, it's a different competition like a World Cup, mm. and um, everything everything has to be perfect. And um, but that it worked out. Honestly, the first time when I counted the medals, really, it was um, on my way back home to Germany. Wow. And um, I think it took a several months. When, when the airline of, refused to take your carrying yeah. luggage on board due to weight. <laughs> so what have you got in there? Yeah. Oh, 14 gold, 17 silvers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so even now, it, it, um, yeah, it sounds strange. Um, yeah, but when I go to one of my rooms here, <laughs> um, they, the medals are there and I'm very happy about that. Mm. But, um, yeah, cannot, cannot describe this, these feelings, um, that's, when I went yeah, to that's there. That's amazing. I saw in some pictures where I think we were, we, we, at least at one point we were ski equipment buddies. I saw a, a, an atomic redster G9 there. Was that your super ski, uh, super G ski? Um, let me see. Yes. Yes. Um, so in the end of my career, um, um, yeah. After Sochi, um, I, I changed um, the ski. So, mm. yeah, in the end, um, I raced with Atomic and it might be my Super G ski, yeah. Red Sochi 9, very good ski. Um, no advertising expert. here. But <laughs> <laughs> long radius, a ski how we like. Yes. <laughs> Definitely. Yes. <laughs> and I still have it here in my house. <laughs> ah, yeah. <laughs> Do you remember, by the way, a sort of random question. Do you remember the, um, the top speed you've ever done in a competition in, in your life? Um, yeah, it was around 130 kilometers per hour. Okay, you win. <laughs> Jeez. I, I, do, I, I find anything sort of beyond 110, I find very unnerving. <laughs> Especially yes, when you then start turning at those speeds. I mean, that's the last thing I'd, I'd consider. Yeah, you know, my, my pupils at the moment, um, when they ask me um, how, yeah, how fast is, is it, 130 kilometers per hour, um, I always um, say them, um, yeah, it feels like if you're on the, on the motorway yeah, standard with your motorway speed, parents, yeah, yeah and just um, put your hand out the window so it's um, very yeah. unclear and sight and all these things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, I always wanted to ask, and again, that's a really a stupid beginner's question, but is the, the ski that you race, is that actually mm -hmm. stiffer than what I would buy in a shop as a civilian, even though it's got the same branding on, or is, is it essentially the same ski? Um, it's not the same ski. Uh -huh. um, so very often they, um, yeah, they sell a race ski, um, but it's not the same ski um, like you have or in the, in the World Cup. Um, races yeah. it's similar but um yeah slightly different 
It, it must be because I mean, the way that my skis start to wobble when you go a certain speed, it, it yeah. looks very different when you watch people going down the drive. Their skis just seem to stick to the ice. It's, it's, yeah, yeah, it's that's right. Same. And honestly, um, but to um, to ski with these skis um, beside a competition and mm. only go yeah just for fun, it's not a fun um, with these skis. So for um, yeah, just having fun with the skiing, I don't use the competition the skis. Fun, I sure. just um, take. Um, yeah, we say tourist <laughs> Last question on that, if, if you don't mind me asking, where did you learn skiing? Where, where did you go as a four-year-old to have your first uh, go on the ski? Uh, I went to Austria yeah. um, because um, where I grew up, um, you cannot go skiing. Um, so I went to Austria. It's um, called Kaunertal. It's close to La yeah, um, Landeck. So, um, yeah, in Tyrol. Very nice. Regensburg. See, I had lots of people from uh, Regensburg in my uh, army ski team because I was down uh, okay. in Brandenburg. I'm in um, in the military ski team, uh, very close to Rosenheim and Munich. And uh, yeah, were, that's I where I live at the moment. Are you there? Oh, brilliant. See, <laughs> yeah. so, uh, so half half my team were originally from Regensburg, so I uh, yeah, know perfect. the area a little bit. There you are. Anyway, let's talk a little bit about Laureus. Um Natalie. Question to you. I mean, obviously, you've been in involved with Laureus. You've been also, I think, Laureus the. Uh, uh, sports person with a disability of the year, I think in 2010, if I remember correctly. Um, and tell us a little bit about what Laureus means to you and your experience sort of working with and supporting the organization. Sure. I think firstly, listening all about skiing, I think it's absolutely crazy um, to go those speeds <laughs> without falls, uh, four doors. But um, wow, I think, you know, it, it really is just amazing how sport just, you know, can do something for an individual, um, you know, and I think that is kind of where Laureus was really special to me. Um, I, I managed to go off to, I think it was, uh, where was it, Spain, Dubai, I, I can't even remember the, the cities, but, um, you know, my first time being at the awards, and, and I'm going to start with the awards for a reason, um, and, you know, to see the top sports people within Laureus and to see um, the amazing, I think, you know, the amazing award ceremony that raises all these funds um, and goes into these areas where, you know, kids are struggling. Um, people are struggling and different sports teaching different lessons. Um, and, you know, Nelson Mandela is saying sport has the power to change the world. And, and the power that that has, um, you know, those words were said at the at the awards. And, Seeing it happen in real life is is truly, you know, it's it's amazing. Um, being part of some of the programs, um, you know, we go in and and just be a part of the day. Um, we do some, you know, events, um, raise some funds, raise awareness. Um, and I think from that perspective, it is the very little that one can do as a sports person and give back. Um, I I haven't really thought about. Um, starting my own um, schools or anything like that um, or organizations. But I think to to focus on, on Laureus for me um, was important. Um, and yeah, I think it's just, it just has that, that same language, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I think that was, that was what it was. It was the fit. It was, you know, being a young girl and being involved in sport and what sport taught me and, I didn't grow up in the in the wealthiest of homes, um, and and we struggled as well. So, you know, it was my backup. It was my ability to get into water and just swim and forget about the world. 
It was my ability to, to do something that nobody judged me for. Um, and I think those were really important. And I'd love to share that back. And, and that was the reason for being a part of Laureus. Mm. And from your perspective, why do you think it is that sport has such, such a transformative uh, power when it comes to young people's lives from all sorts of different backgrounds? Why is it just such a good agent for change, you think? You know, there's, there's, I guess, a lot of science behind some of it as well. Um, you know, all of us are very, very different. Um, some of us come from really tough backgrounds, um, poor backgrounds. And, and if I take, you know, myself and I take some of the projects and you've got some of the, the kids that were part of programs that became leaders in the YES program um, and have gone on to start their own organizations and teach younger kids. Um, sport just has the ability, and, and in my case, it was the ability to, to achieve something and feel like you're worth something. It has the ability to, um, you know, as I said, switch off and take out your frustrations. Um, not on a person, but in sport and by achieving and, you know, just training hard. Um, we see a lot of, you know, a lot of the programs focus on, um, you know, for example, Fight with Insight, it is um, ultimately boxing, but it's not to take it out on the opponent. Um, yeah. So it actually teaches you to calm yourself. So there's different programs that, that work on different things and different challenges within the different areas that seem to be one of the biggest challenges or problems within that area. Um, you know, and I think, you know, we talk about sport and I mean, even for Anna, it was, you know, I wouldn't imagine being able to ski, um, let alone being able to, to ski as a disabled person. Um, but the ability to ski, um, for me, it was the ability to get into water and still be able to swim. There's a lot of disabled, um, you know, people out there that get into sport and it allows them to live. Um, you know, it's not always about the money that comes in, but it's about finding your purpose or finding something that you can do that makes you feel like a little bit of a human. Mm. Um, and I find a lot of the projects, you know, it brings people together. It brings them, you know, to do some work, to, to play, to, to make friends, um, to break down stigma, to break down some of the cultural um, barriers and cultural challenges, um, specifically here in South Africa. Um, you know, and, you know, I can I can share a story of um, swimming. Swimming girls wear a swimming costume, um, and you know it's teaching boys that ultimately, you know, you can't just touch a girl in a costume. Um, you know, you can't just be rude to her because she's wearing a costume. But mm. ultimately, at the end of the day, she's also human, and you've got to treat her with respect. Um, so I think those are a lot of the lessons that that I've seen happen in front of my eyes. Um, and for that reason, it's it's really special. Um, and yeah, I guess I was just an example of of you know the power of sport as well. And it's difficult to say specifically what sport did because it's kind of made me who I am. And I think that's kind of what happens is you get caught up in it, and it makes you who you are. It is, you know, the drive, the the passion. You don't know all of those while you're an athlete until you retire and you you sit back and you think. Um, and I think that's that's the that's the precious part of it um, is you don't always know what you're learning. You know, you're not sitting at a desk and learning something, but you're learning it as you're doing it. Yeah, I want to touch on that a little bit because that, that especially is that development and formative aspect of what sport does to young people, I think is something that, that you, Anna, uh, really work on very directly with your Grenzenlos camps, which in English is limitless, where I think you... 
um, encourage um, young people from all different ability backgrounds to come together and find their own limits and also see what they can do and get that sort of reconfirmation through different sport and other based experiences. Um, tell us a little bit about that and, and what it does for, for young people at an age when they might be sort of finding out who they really are and, and they're still in this formative process, I guess. Yeah, it's a very um, interesting um, age of the kids. So they are um, have two camps. Um, one is from the age of 14 to 17, and one camp is from, let me think, um, 18 to 21. So um, both ages are very um, yeah interesting and spectacular because um, so I have recognized in the last um, yeah years um, yeah especially when I talk with them um, some partners um, from Athev um, that many kids at this age um, are not that self confident mm. and um, they fear to um, yeah to to apply to, to a job because they think, especially the kids with a disability, oh no, maybe I cannot um, apply there because I'm a disability and I know I don't know. Um, yeah, they're not self-confident. And um, that was one of the points um, when I started to think about it and um, yeah, started to, to plan and organize um, the, the camps. And one other point was, um, so, my whole life, um, especially in my childhood, um, there were a lot of camps where um, to that people could go um, with a disability or there were camps with, um, yeah, for people without a disability. Mm. And I always missed a camp um, for all people. So it doesn't matter, um, yeah, of the color of their hairs or their skin or disability or anything like that. So um, that was a point when I started um, to do the camps. And um, yeah, we have three big points in the camps. One is the sport point um, where the kids um, try a lot of uh, sports. And um, yeah, like you said, they, they just have a look. Um, where's my... Um, yeah, where's my limit? And maybe I can do more than I think. Um, or maybe, okay, it doesn't work, uh, does not work out like this. So maybe I have to change anything and then it is possible to do anything. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah and um, that's, I think that's the point um, Natalie said before. Um, the, um, yeah, the people, um, yeah, with or without a disability, they just, um, yeah, get each other to know, they uh, get in contact um, and they see, okay, um, maybe the first time I see a disabled um, yeah, kid and it's like, oh, maybe um, he or she cannot do this or that. But um, after the week, um, they recognize, okay, everyone um, yeah, has, has a strength and everyone um, can yeah, motivate or inspire um, anyone else. Mm. So um, the, with the other two points of the camp, so it's um, it's media and um, where the kids um, yeah make their own um, film and video or yeah and um, yeah and the personality. So we work with the personality and, and with the self confidence, um, like I told in the beginning. So and I was um, every time, um, honestly, I'm very, very excited um, when I go to the camps and when a new camp starts, because, you know, um, I don't know the, um, 
the kids or the teenagers before I go there. And um, each group is completely different. And of course, I can um, think, um, yeah, very, uh, yeah, many, many hours about the camp and I can organize whatever I want to. But um, the group has to be open minded. And, um, and yeah, so, and every time when I go home, um, I was very, very happy about, uh, yeah, about the camp. Um, when I see people live the values, um, yeah, you want to, yeah, get them to know. So, um, yeah, it's one of my big, um, yeah, big things, um, I have, I have in my heart and want mm -hmm. to see. So I'm really looking forward to the, for the next camps, um, in, yeah, in this year. So this will be, this year we, um, have more camps, um, like before. So last year we had three camps a year. Um, this year we have five camps. Um, yeah, and it's for me, it's perfect and wonderful to see, um, to see this project growing. Yeah. No, and it's, it's amazing, as you said, you know, to not have the segregation of, different abilities but to have uh, young people come together like that and experience things together that is really what builds a lot of confidence and understanding and I think as you say it's the, the yeah. big missing link often when we talk about different abilities and disability is the fact that even though you know that there might not be any uh, prejudice or anything in any way people might you know young people as well if they've never been in touch with people of different abilities that there might be a nervousness yeah. there might be barriers etc and people just also been scared of maybe insulting somebody or doing the wrong thing and i i, I can relate to that in, in a sense because um, my two older children actually spent a little bit of time in the in the english schooling system which is by comparison to to the sort of continental european schooling systems a very integrated um you know public school system where kids of very different levels of ability and learning support and all the rest of it all work together in the same classroom and i think what it does is it it really gives kids an understanding of all of the different levels of ability in their peer group from a very early age. So then they're not hesitant yep. to get in touch. They're not hesitant to make contact. They're not hesitant to invite other kids to play because they've seen it from basically the first day of nursery. Whereas I think if obviously yep. you have very separated and segregated schooling systems, then I think those barriers, they're bound to be there more because it's just not kids are just not used to it. And I think that you're bringing everybody together in this way is, is just amazing yeah so it becomes normal for the kids yeah and i think that's uh yeah the most important point hmm. no and let's also natalie i want to, want to touch on that obviously you, you've had this entire sort of you know career also seen from both sides in south africa and you know obviously we want to talk a little bit about the the, the whole equality and inclusion topic as well because i'm, I'm sure that or i hope that uh, progress has been made over over the years when you, know, you look back in your career and your life but where are there still areas where you know where, where we really need to to improve where where we need to work on and, and what can be done and what can everybody get also get involved with to to really make uh, those changes uh, for the better still still happen today well i think it's <laughs> it's a very open question um you know when when i was disabled in 2001 and competed in 2002 for my first time um there was you know as i i spoke about multi-disability then so i'm going to go with sport first mm. and Ultimately, it was, you know, we were the showcase of the tournament because there was only two races for us. And um, look, I was, I swam able-bodied as well there, but 
I think it was really interesting because you kind of felt like you were a showcase. Um, yeah. And, you know, here in, in, in Africa, um, we had our African championships where we actually raced two hours before all the able-bodied um, because we got different medals and you get, you know, many different things. So, so obviously there's the, the in, at the highest level of sport, there's the two, two different bodies. There's the IOC and the IPC. Um, yeah. And, you know, as an athlete, you are classified, et cetera. Um, and I think from that perspective, if I look at the Commonwealth Games, um, going from the multi-disability events, there's now there's two or three events and they've classed two or three classes together only rather than just all the multi-disability together. Um, it's been a, a big topic um, in sport for so many years. And I know now that, you know, there's a lot of research being done, a lot of questions being answered um, from different levels, different perspectives. Um, I must admit that for me, it was tough trying to integrate into able-bodied sport um, because as the disabled events became part of the able-bodied events, it, it wasn't enough, you know, there wasn't enough races um, or, you know, it discriminated against some of the disabilities because they weren't fast enough, for example. Um, and and I think that's challenging, you know, from traveling and, um, you know, as, as a severely disabled person, you you need a second to help you yeah. um and that becomes an extra expense um you know at events it's extra accreditation it's so there's a lot of these challenges that come with it um and then on the other side um you know you look at i have a little seven-year-old niece and a four-year-old nephew and they've grown up with me with my disability and they don't really see it anymore mm. um you know and i'm just that just the normal person so I think it's, you know, from my side in sport, it was really negative, but really positive because I had the opportunity, but not everybody has that opportunity. So for me, that was negative. Um, it'll be interesting to see all the disabilities competing together um, because, you know, there's 13 categories just in the in the Paralympics alone. Um, That's complex. And, and then there's, the, you know, there's actually 14 categories and, you know, it, it'll be really interesting to see how long that games will, will take place. Um, but yes, you know, I think in life, um, you know, from, from South Africa here and the acceptance of, you know, disability within the able-bodied communities and able-bodied within the disabled communities, we look at businesses, we look at, you know, co-working spaces, we look at, you know, just communities on the whole, it's become a lot more accessible um, and, and also accepting. Um, you know, I know for a, a period, businesses were struggling to get, you know, people to come forward to talk about their disabilities or to let them know that they had disabilities because they thought that they'd get fired. Um, so conversations have really changed. And I think that's been really, really positive over the past few years. And, you know, as a disabled person, sometimes you you see a little bit more of the disability side, um, you know, because you're in it. Um, and it can be quite nasty sometimes because ultimately, you know, you've got to stand up for your rights as well. Um, but at the same time, I think things have shifted and I think there's a long way to go st still. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, it becomes, I think, a bit more inclusive. Um, you know, there's the equity, there's the inclusivity, um, you know, there's, uh, what is it, inclusivity, diversity, equity, and accessibility. So, mm. you know, it's it's diverse. Um, and 
I think for me, not being in sport now and seeing it happen in business and in life, um, and you see sport and you see similar things happening, and you just realize that everyone is on a drive um, to to be better. Um, being in South Africa, we're very conscious of color and race and gender and um, you know, we're just conscious and the conscious part of it is, is that is what's important. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, even looking back at, uh, at my sort of earlier work experience, you know, my background is in architecture and even just learning the different building codes in different countries and sort of seeing what's behind there and how we design spaces and, and urban spaces for, for people to, to live and, and work and, and uh, be entertained and all the rest of it. It's quite striking that, A, you know, often you do see that things are being created just in a certain way that is not accessible, that's not considerate, because maybe it just wasn't thought about at all. And then at that point, when you look at the building regulations in many countries, at the time at least when I studied, disability was pretty much defined as an upper able-bodied person in a wheelchair. And that was the only disability, that dimension of disability that was really sort of considered in the code. And, and beyond that, it was up to the individual building owners, designers, architects, etc., to to sort of make those considerations. And it is quite extreme. You think over time, yes, it has evolved a lot. I think this, um, especially in the UK, the, the Anti-Disability Discrimination Act was a huge step forward that basically defined, okay, let's be considerate and let's make sure that all of the services can be provided to uh, people with a disability the same way as able-bodied people and all the rest of it. And I think that's a huge, huge progress. But still, we are not there on an everyday a level, I guess. I mean, Anna, what's been, been your experience and, and your view on that? Yeah, pretty much the same. So I think it's very important that um, every person, um, yeah, it does not matter which disability um, it have or or the person does not have, um, has to reach an, an, yeah, a building or has to reach in um, to go to the sports club and all mm. these things. So it has to be possible to go everywhere because I think if it's not possible to to enter a house or to enter the train or the things um it won't it won't be um possible to be um inside the society um i think um yeah that's one of the yeah the, the most important point for ourselves and i think in the last years something happened and i think it's we're in a good way but all in all there's still a lot what we have to do um that everyone um, is possible to take part um, at the society and at the daily life. Yeah, absolutely. And finally, if I can ask you, you know, obviously a lot of our listeners will be very interested in, in, in your work with Laureus as well. And Laureus has, has the uh, International uh, Sport for Good Foundations. Um, if people want to get involved in Laureus and support the great cause and the many, many local projects that Laureus run around the globe, uh, what do you think, Natalie, is the best way for people to get involved? I would probably just say Google Laureus, um, Sport for Good Foundation, or just Laureus in general, and, and you'll find all the information there. There's the social media handles as well. You know, get to follow it a bit on social, get to get to research it a bit online, um, different ways, different projects. Um, you know, it's, it's quite an amazing concept in that, you know, there are these top sports people um, from around the world, and then we have these projects on the ground. Um, and, you know, the sponsors that also sponsor a lot of the projects as well. So there's, there's many facets to it. Um, and I think it's to find the, the facet that interests you, 
um, the facet that is important to you and and then you know find the details on the website and and contact um, or on social media for that matter so you know it's quite open and you know it's just one of those interesting projects that that has brought all levels of sport together in 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 my eyes um and in different ways and it has evolved as well over the last few years it's evolved from you know some of the projects and and their programs and and teaching the kids through sport um to you know be it uh surfing disabled surfing um as one of the projects in in Durban here in South Africa so you know skateboarding um all these new olympic sports are are all part of the programs and I think that's the special part is no matter what sport you take part in there's always something and just for each and every person who's interested go and google go and follow on social media social media handles uh, laureus um and you know just follow and see if you like it see what you like and then and then make contact the social media marketeer and digital marketeer speaking there definitely and Anna, of course there's a very strong foundation laureus in in germany as well so tell us a little bit about that yeah, it's very difficult to um, yeah to point on on one one special project. So I um, I was on a project um, where um, yeah where yeah it's a project in kindergarten and the kindergarten um, for example they um, have a partnership with where yeah where some horses are mm. and the people so the um, yeah it's an integrative um, kindergarten uh, once a week they go to deal with the horses and yeah it was was great to see it was great to see the um the fun and the happiness of the of the kids um yeah and it did not matter uh, which disability they had and of course <laughs> uh, there's one project um where teenagers um go skiing <laughs> you know uh, i think that's very um that's very great so honestly i wanted to to go there and um yeah want to work with the teenagers there too but you know then there was the COVID 19 thing yes, <laughs> and um, things one. became yeah. more difficult we've done really um, well we managed an hour without mentioning the word COVID. i thought that was exceptional yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> i was going to ask you is that that must have had an impact on your your camp business as well in the in the setup phase but you know we have we got we got around it for for over an hour so that's good <laughs> <laughs> yeah sorry <laughs> Um, yeah, so that's one of the projects um, I really want to um, want to visit and want to work with the teenagers. Um, you know, there are so many um, yeah projects and camps um, Laureus has in, or having in, in Germany. When I had a look on the website, um, yeah, I was overwhelmed um, about the diversity and about the yeah number of different. Um, yeah, projects. So um, I can talk the next hour about different projects, mm. um, but that, um, these two projects, um, yeah, I, I have seen with my um, own eyes. And um, the last project, that's um, yeah, that's something where um, I want to yeah want to do a little more in the next in the next years. Brilliant, sounds fantastic, and of course we wish you. All the best and much success uh, with with all of those things you're doing there at the moment. And finally, we've got to talk a little bit about uh, the the larger topic of of time. Um, of course, first of all, just to point out again for for everyone who's not aware that we have been creating special signature laureus uh, watch editions ever since 2003. I think, Natalie, you, put, you pointed the date out correctly. I think that was the Portuguese chronograph, the very first laureus watch, all the way to this year's, which is actually a Pilot Mark 18 in blue ceramic. 
And every time we organize a children's drawing competition globally, and the winner uh, winner's drawing is engraved on the back. And of course, um, this watch really supports all of the work of the Global uh, Laureate Sport for Good Foundations and projects as uh, as Natalie and Anna just described. So um, that's your chance to support in, in that small way. And then, of course, um, at the end of every one of these podcast episodes, I have a couple of time-related question, questions. I'm going to pick them randomly and just fire them at you. So Natalie, I've got to ask you, what is your first ever watch memory? What is your first watch and how and where did you get it? <laughs> If you ever had My one. first memory would actually be winning a watch you in won? a race that I swam <laughs> Brian, in a lagoon. <laughs> yeah, so it was it was pink um, with a black strap. Okay. <laughs> and, and yeah, it was a swimming watch. So it ended up swimming all my uh, training sessions with me and timing myself. So um, I guess that's my 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 biggest memory um obviously i had a, a watch when i was younger yeah so was that a, a digital swimming watch i guess the the pink and pink and black yes one? yes so so i could actually time myself it had a timer so well, that's, i could that's swim links it was like a competitive swimming <laughs> <laughs> not always but open water it doesn't pick up it never used to pick up very well um and you know in the back of the day it was only 50 meters uh what did you call water resistance so You know, you couldn't put it, you couldn't go diving with it, but it was good to swim it. And I remember, you know, on weekends, just randomly going and doing a training session on my own and I'm timing myself, um, you know, it was the latest toy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And Anna, your, your first watch memory, if you have one. Oh, I just thought about it. Um, yes, um, I have uh, my first watch. It was not a digital one. And I still have my first watch. Um, it's good. somewhere um, in my bathroom um, because I could not throw it away <laughs> because, um, yeah, you have some, some memories about that. Um, yeah, it's a red one with yellow, blue, green stripes. And yes, but um, it was besides sports. <laughs> you like your colors and watches, <laughs> I have to say. Yes. Have to, we have to, <laughs> note to product management. <laughs> make them colorful <laughs> brilliant and that, natalie final question to you um if you think back your your career your life that one moment where you just felt like stopping time forever what would it have been if i tell you it was actually qualifying for the olympic games it was it was the most perfect race that i could have ever had just everything clicked from start to finish um not beforehand and not really afterwards but but the race itself it was like time had stopped and it was just yeah, it was just i wasn't hit i wasn't kicked i fed perfectly i was in the top four in the last kilometer and i was just far enough ahead and it was just the most perfect moment and i think trying to recreate that so many years later um it was impossible obviously different time different circumstances different conditions different everything age etc but It's one of those moments that I would have loved to have been able to have over because moments I don't think you always think too much about. Um, and only once they're over do you get to think a little bit about them. Mm. Yes, absolutely. And, and that's always you, you, you wish you could go back to it and just, just feel it and take it all in again. But sometimes you're in absolute daze and it's just like, where's it gone? <laughs> and Anna, for you? Um, yeah, it's an easy question. Um, it has to do with uh, with a race too, but it was not the race. Um, it was my second goal at the Paralympics in Pyeongchang mm -hmm. um, 
yeah, a few years ago, ago um, because it was um, when I finished the race. So I came into the finish area and um, there was a um, yeah big crowd of, of people. So um, yeah, thousands of people. And it was the moment when I um, crossed the finish line and when I saw that I won the race. And then I had a um, yeah a few to the to the people. And there I saw my, my whole family was uh, seven persons um, came over Korea, South Korea, and I saw them celebrating. So that was, um, yeah, for me one, yeah, I think it was the best moment of my career. And I love to, yeah, to, to remember this moment. Amazing story. Very touching. And um, thank you both of you for coming on the, the podcast today. I'm sure. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for sharing your insight and the amazing work you're doing at the moment as well. Wishing you all the best for all of your projects, your ventures, and of course, with your work with Laureus as well. And I'm sure you've inspired a few listeners here to start their or change their own path indeed, uh, based on where they are today. Thanks a lot for coming, Natalie. Pleasure to have you. Thanks so much. And thanks for having me on the podcast. It's it's always great to, to also speak with Anna and, you know, get different sports together and I think from that perspective, you know, get completely different ideas and, and um, you know, reasons behind things as well, because we can all learn lessons. So thank you for having me. And thank you, Anna, for, for allowing me to be a part of this as well. Um, and it was great to, you know, to hear your side of the story. Yeah, and thank you, Anna, uh, all the way to the mountains. The sun has well and truly gone down now. I can see this out of my window. <laughs> yes, it is. It's dark. So thank you from my side. Uh, thank you very, very much. Thank you, um, Natalie, too. Um, I think um, after this uh, this podcast, um, I know what I want to do this in the evening. Um, maybe I have I will uh, Google Natalie. <laughs> we'll <Yeah>. see. <laughs> and really, I would um, look forward to... Um, yeah, to, to hear um, to hear you once again would be really great. Absolutely. Well, we might see each other at some glorious event in the not too, you know, the, the post-COVID back to physical events. It would be <laughs> great one day when we don't have to spend half of our time worrying about PCR tests and travel restrictions anymore. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be nice. Now, thank you. Thank you very much. We could have talked for hours. And dear listeners, I hope you enjoyed uh, this podcast episode, uh, talking to two amazing athletes, uh, their careers and their purpose and what they're doing at the moment now, using their sporting experience to transform form a more lives for the better i uh, hope you enjoyed the episode speak to you again soon when it's time for another one of uh, partners in time in the meantime stay safe have a good one speak to you soon bye